David Petraeus is a retired United States Army general, having served in the military for 37 years. During that time, he was commander of U.S. Central Command and led combat operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. After retiring from the service, he served as director of the CIA during the Obama administration. He is now chairman of the KKR Global Institute. Today, he discusses what kind of strategic leadership is needed to run and manage successful organizations. Let's listen in. And with that, let me turn this over to uh, my friend, General David Petraeus. General, it's yours. Well, thank you very much, Andrew, and thanks, Nancy, and congratulations on what you've put together. Um, when you noted that it was a bipartisan or nonpartisan or whatever, uh, you sort of had me at the first sentence. Uh, I am truly non-political completely to the point of not even registering to vote since I was promoted to two stars and I've tried to, to stay with that. Um, what I thought I would do today, since this is a group that I'm told uh, likes to get together to discuss how to solve problems, uh, and also includes a lot of people who have exercised not just leadership, but strategic leadership. In other words, have been the CEO or uh, president of an organization in which they are the ones determining the course for that organization, be it in government, in the military, uh, in the private sector. And I think that strategic leadership truly is different uh, because one of the principal tasks of a strategic leader is really only exercised by a person at that particular level. The other functions and tasks and techniques and so forth are generally common to leaders at whatever level, but it's only those at the very top. Uh, it's, it's only Reed Hastings at the end of the day after having an inclusive and iterative and open discussion of what the next steps for Netflix should be, who actually has to make the decision on how to reinvent Netflix yet again. And by the way, he has done this at least four times by my count. I've discussed it with him. I'm looking forward to seeing the new book that's just come out. Um, I've actually built a, an intellectual construct for strategic leadership. You can actually find it at the Belfer Center at Harvard where I was a fellow for six years. Uh, we built that over time there to try to capture what the distinction is between, again, strategic leadership and other kinds of leadership. And then to be able to use that construct to evaluate how it is that we are doing on various tasks. Um, I identify in that construct four tasks of a strategic leader. The first is that you have to get the big ideas right. You have to get the strategy right, whether it's a, a startup and you're a founder or you're the commander of U.S. Central Command with 250,000 men and women under uniform or Iraq with 190,000, whatever it may be, you've got to get that strategy right. And this is what the task that truly distinguishes strategic leadership from that exercise by others in an organization. And the truth is, if you don't get the big ideas right and keep them right, uh, then all the rest of it doesn't matter. It doesn't actually matter how charismatic, how driven, how smart, uh, how what a great example, how much energy you provide, all of the interpersonal skills, all of these other facets, integrity, values, et cetera, et cetera. If you don't get the big ideas right up front, all the rest is building on a very shaky foundation. So you've got to get that right at the beginning. 
Then you have to communicate the big ideas throughout the breadth and depth of the organization. Uh, the soldier on patrol under body armor and Kevlar has to understand the intent at my level during the surge in Iraq. And that surge that mattered most was the surge of ideas, the change in strategy, not the surge of forces, which I can walk through for you and, and identify the key big ideas, which were 180 degrees different from what it was we were doing before. Uh, and again, we could have had all the extra forces in the world, but without the change in strategy, we wouldn't have driven violence down by 85%, uh, made the other progress that we did and gave, give, given Iraq a whole new opportunity uh, to take advantage of uh, in the post-Saddam era. So again, get the big ideas right, communicate them effectively through the breadth and depth of the organization oversee the implementation of the big ideas. This is what we often think of as leadership. This is the energy. It's the example that the leader provides. It's the schedule, the battle rhythm, if you will. How does the leader spend his or her time? It's the metrics that tell you whether you're winning or losing, and you really do have to pay attention to them and believe them, especially if they're not going in the direction that you'd like to see them go. This is the hiring and the firing. It's the tactics, techniques, and procedures uh, of leadership. Uh, it, is, it is the values, the integrity, the work ethic, the basic uh, go get it, and all the rest of this, the culture that is built by the leader. But again, keep in mind that can all be spectacular, but if you don't get the big ideas right up front, all of that is for naught. And then there's a fourth task that is often overlooked, and this is the task of determining how you need to refine the big ideas, how to adopt new ones, how to jettison old ones. And this is often overlooked at the peril of, of firms. Let's think about, for example, Kodak, which had 2000 patents on digital photography, uh, but didn't make the change quickly enough. They hung on with film photography for too long. They didn't capitalize on the opportunities that they had with the patents in the digital arena and they ceased to exist as we uh, knew them back when they were such a successful firm. So you've got to constantly sit down. I, I did it formally as the commander in Iraq. We had action forcing mechanisms on a weekly basis with the planners, on a monthly basis with the colonels that were all the head of the different lessons learned teams that we had from the Army, the Air Force, the Marine Corps, the Counterinsurgency Center, and all these other organizations that were all over the battlefield collecting lessons filtering them back, then sitting down with me for an hour a month, and then we would have people sitting there, we'd direct to say, okay, we need to incorporate that into the, we didn't use necessarily the word big ideas, but we have to incorporate it into that particular uh, element of our mission statement for our campaign plan. So that's the idea of, again, strategic leadership. Um, I mentioned, mentioned, I think that uh, Netflix is a great case study in this because Reed Hastings, again, has reinvented Netflix at least four times if you count the beginning. Think about the very first time when Netflix uh, was established, essentially to put, the big idea was to put movies in the hands of customers without brick and mortar stores. So we're going to put Blockbuster out of business. That's the big idea, communicated, overseen, get down here, say, how do we need to change this two years later? It's going great. Blockbuster really is going out of business. Um, but now other companies are doing what they were doing. So what's the new big idea? Well, broadband speeds were fast enough. So they said, well, let's try having customers download movies 
uh, we'll work that out. New big idea, communicate overseas, get down, how do we refine it? Well, now other, other firms are doing that as well. So now let's create our own content, $100 million on House of Cards alone, Breaking Bad, all these other iconic uh, series that people have binge watched, uh, particularly since mid-March, uh, for any kind of diversion possible. But they work that through. Of course, now many other companies start doing that. And so then the big idea is, let's go buy some movie production studios, and we're going to produce big movies. And you may recall the very first one uh, was the one about my very close friend and battlefield comrade, General Stan McChrystal in Afghanistan. Uh, he had Brad Pitt playing Stan McChrystal. I'm sure that even Brad Pitt would acknowledge it was uh, by no means his best performance. He was a wooden soldier. He sort of marched around. Stan doesn't do that. Stan has a sense of humor. Besides, I was devastated that Brad Pitt didn't hold out to play me. I had a little bit part later on played by the Australian actor who was in Gladiator. Um, in any event, that's how that works. And if you come back to the surge in Iraq, the biggest of the big ideas was a recognition that the, the human terrain is a decisive terrain, the people. We must secure the people and we cannot do it by doing what we have been doing, which is handing off tasks to the Iraqi security forces which were increasingly incapable of handling the, handling the dangerously escalating level of violence. And we were retreating to our big bases preparatory to presumably uh, going home. And we had to reverse that. We had to go back downtown. We had to live with the people because that was the only way that we could secure them. And that meant in operational terms, 77 additional locations, most of which we had to fight to reestablish just in the Baghdad area alone and dozens more outside the capital. Keep in mind that Iraq, that the capital of Iraq, at the time that the surge started, was in such uh, completely insecure uh, circumstances that there were 53 dead civilians due to violence every 24 hours just in Baghdad alone. And that could not continue, needless to say. There was no possibility of achieving anything if you couldn't reestablish security. Then another huge idea was that we couldn't kill or capture our way out of industrial strength insurgency. We had to reconcile with as many of the rank and file of the Sunni insurgency and of the Shia militia as we could. Uh, we pursued that very aggressively, but a corollary to that was that we intensified the, the hunt for the irreconcilables, the leaders of the Sunni insurgency, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, uh, and the Shia militia. And then there were a handful of other big ideas as well, but you get the idea that again, this strategy was 180 degrees different from what we've been doing before. And without that change, again, 25 or 30,000 additional troops added to an existing 140,000 certainly would not have predicted that you'd be able to drive violence down by over 85% and then keep it down over the subsequent three and a half years as we withdrew our combat forces, uh, sadly only to watch the Prime Minister of Iraq undo what we had done by very dangerous steps that tore apart the fabric of society and reignited uh, Sunni Arab feelings of alienation uh, and, and sparked an, an opportunity for Al-Qaeda to stand back up as the Islamic State. Now, all of that is a little bit of a prelude to examining the current challenges that we face throughout the world, 
uh, but particularly in the United States. Uh, how has our strategic leadership done in combating the most serious challenge that we've had, at least in terms of a pandemic, obviously, since uh, the great flu uh, epidemic of 17 and 18, 19, uh, 17 and 18. Um, and it's an interesting case study to look at this. Now, first of all, of course, you have to keep in mind that we have more than one strategic leader in the United States. Obviously, you have a chief executive at the national level, but because of the way our health system is established, we don't obviously have a national health service. We have a variety of state and in some cases city and private and, and, and public and so forth. So governors play a very, very important role. And it's interesting when you consider them as strategic leaders, because that's where you actually see some who have gotten it right. The irony of our circumstance is that the big ideas actually have been largely present since probably sometime in, again, mid-March, late March. And these were put out nationally. They were published by the White House. These were the CDC guidelines that were published. You also had the National Governor Association guidelines, very similar. You had the Harvard Safra Center, you had AEI in Washington, all of them roughly the same. And they all basically said that if you have community transmission of the virus, which most of our major metropolitan areas have experienced, and now even in some of the rural areas, you literally have to lock everybody down. Uh, you have to particularly take care of those who are most vulnerable, the elderly, pre-existing conditions, and, and so forth. And only the most essential workers are out and about. Um, and that you only relax that when you've had 14 consecutive days of a reduction of the incidence of uh, the viral infection, and during which you have built up your testing capacity and your tracing capacity, uh, and only then do you actually relax to phase one, uh, still keeping the most vulnerable out of circulation to the extent that you can, having distinct limits on the size of gatherings, not reopening bars and restaurants for inside uh, dining and a variety and wearing masks, of course, which has obviously become uh, acknowledged as increasingly very, very important in reducing the R factor uh, the retransmission, or if you will, reproduction factor, so that it stays below one, uh, it means that you're, the number is going down rather than if it's more than one reinfecting more than one each time, obviously the numbers are going to start to climb. And interestingly, as you look at this, um, I would single out probably the governor of New York, perhaps his uh, counterparts in New Jersey and Connecticut, all of whom banded together, uh, and largely got it right. Now, Governor Cuomo, I think, rightly acknowledges that he should have shut down New York State sooner than he did, um, a, at least a week and probably two or even more weeks uh, earlier, as was the case uh, in some situations in the West, in Washington State, to a degree uh, in, in California. Um, and also there were errors made obviously with uh, some of the uh, homes for the elderly. But beyond that has done a very, very impressive job. He has, he has communicated the big ideas very effectively. I mean, he's mastered the art of the pandemic briefing and, and made it a must watch kind of uh, event each day. 
He has been first with the truth. He has communicated honestly, openly, forthrightly. Uh, he has explained the reasons why we need to take the steps that we have. Uh, and he has followed the metrics. And again, in Iraq, we lived and died by metrics. Uh, I brought those back to Congress and I said, these, I stand by these. We have ratcheted them down, the definitions, the process by which we build these numbers. And I stand behind the numbers that I'm showing and I will stand by what they tell us in each of my appearances with you or when you come out and visit with us uh, in Iraq. Uh, and they did show undeniably uh, over time the enormous uh, reduction in the level of violence during the surge, during that 18 month period uh, in Iraq. And, and Governor Cuomo again has followed these metrics and has done what they allow New York to do including making some modifications along the way. So he's overseen the implementation in a very draconian, uh, wonderfully determined manner. And then he has had a process where they have looked at what do we need to refine? In particular, again, the bars and uh, indoor dining has been something that they have pushed much further out. They're now going to allow some of this uh, and maybe not bars, but some of a reduced, much reduced capacity dining at the end of September with various safeguards that are very intelligent, I think. So you see actually uh, that being done properly uh, in that state or those states, maybe some others around the country. And frankly, you also see a number of examples, uh, both arguably at the national level and then certainly in some of the states that just after adopting the guidelines, completely disregarded them, opened up far too soon, paid an enormous price for that, or their people did, then had to clamp down uh, further. Uh, you have situations of states where they don't allow the mayors the flexibility that arguably they should have. Again, all pandemics are local, just like all politics, just like all counterinsurgency operations. And so I thought I would just offer that up uh, at at the beginning as a way of getting conversation going and noting that I'd be happy to take questions on, on any topic really, uh, although I again don't do domestic politics, although I'll certainly do policies uh, uh, without attaching them to various domestic pol political figures. And I do believe that John McCain was a great hero. <laughs> well, uh, General, thank you very much. Um... As of right now, we've got uh, Michael Falcon, Bill Kaufman, Richard Krasnow, and um, uh, Stamen Ogilvy in that order. But I'm going to uh, take the advantage of uh, being the introducer and ask, ask the first question. Um, can you give us, uh, uh, General, some insights? You've worked with a number of uh, presidents. Can you give us uh, some insights on some of the different work styles and leadership styles of the ones you've had the pleasure of working with? Well, I, I mean, I can only say to have worked closely, truly closely with two presidents and, and that would be uh, President Bush and President Obama, uh, both very assiduous. I mean, they had a different style in the sense that, you know, Bush, had, affected this kind of Texan, you know, but really it was a very serious uh, individual. And 
And I should note that I got to know him most in the second term rather than the first term. And I would actually say that when it came to the issues with which I was dealing, uh, Iraq in particular, but also uh, then the broader Middle East later on, there were really two Bushes. There was the Bush uh, prior to the election of 2006. Uh, and of course, you'll recall that that was a disastrous midterm election for his, him and his party. Uh, they lost control of the Senate, having already lost control of the House. Uh, he replaced his Secretary of Defense, his commander in, in Iraq, his ambassador in Iraq, his Central Command commander. Um, and he basically took control of the war. I think it is one of the most masterful performances as commander in chief really in our history. And I say that as someone who wrote a dissertation uh, at Princeton that was on the American military and the use of force in the post-Vietnam era. So I looked at these kinds of issues and actually before the Vietnam era as well. And there's no president in probably in our history since maybe again, World War II or going back to the Civil War, who was so deeply engaged in uh, an endeavor. Uh, he began every work week in Washington with a meeting at 7.30 in the morning with his entire national security team. That is early on a Monday morning. If you think of all the prep work that everyone goes before going over to the White House and sitting around the Situation Room table, uh, and all the action officers and everybody else that probably were coming in at two or three in the morning to eventually prepare their principal uh, to go across the river. Um, and it lasted for an hour. It started precisely on time. Uh, again, everyone present at that table, but he immediately went out to Ambassador Crocker and myself and said, okay, tell us what's going on in Iraq. What's the latest? What do you need from us? How can we help you, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and he became, he was enormously engaged uh, in, in that process. And uh, instead of the subcontracting, which took place a little bit prior to that, uh, to say the Pentagon and the Secretary of Defense, there was no question who was in charge uh, of the Washington part of the surge in Iraq. Uh, and again, I thought that was an extraordinary, again, as a strategic leader, um, you can say you certainly can critique some of the earlier uh, events, including Hurricane Katrina. And I never get into the whether we should or should not have done Iraq as the man who wrote more letters of condolence to a mother, mothers and fathers in America than anyone else. But the surge in Iraq, I believe, was a courageous decision. And I also thought that the performance uh, in the early days of the Great Recession was masterful as well. Um, this is where you saw someone who had relationships around the world. It just so happened, and I spent a lot of time with him as well. And one of the times we, he decided to challenge me to a mountain bike race. You may know that he was fairly competitive about that stuff. And uh, you may also know that I'm even more competitive about it. So you had to alter it. And we're talking trash to each other. He challenged me in the Oval Office when I brought my family by after the surge in Iraq, he invited us over. And he said, so General, when are you going to dare ride a mountain bike with me? And I said, Mr. President, do you have a death wish? I mean, I'm going to give you something you can write off on your income taxes education. 
in any event, there we are. And so we're in the actually an SUV, I think, not the beast riding out to Fort Belvoir nearby, which is where they'd scraped out these fantastic mountain bike courses for him. And he had this group of riders called Peloton One that would ride with him. And then we occasionally there would be a guest as there was uh, that day. But on the way out and on the way back, I think each leg of that trip, which again was a little less than an hour, he probably talked to 10 uh, foreign leaders, uh, at least 16 or more in total, um, some actually maybe more than once, in, in addition to others in our own government, assembling what was to be the summit that you'll recall was conducted in Washington uh, in I guess it was either late September or early October uh, of 2008. Uh, and that really set the foundation, the kind of global coordination that was so important to responding to the Great Recession and the collapse um, that had followed the, uh, the various issues that brought that about. And again, I thought that was extraordinary strategic leadership. And then there was a near flawless handoff, of course, uh, by the president to President Obama and also by the Treasury and the others who were engaged in that uh, to their successors. And, and again, I thought very, very impressive work. So um, that would be the assessment there. And again, you know, President Obama, famously smart, famously did his homework, famously assiduous. Um, famously enjoyed uh, discussion, debate at the table, um, you know, loved to see uh, Petraeus and Susan Rice, you know, debating each other over various issues of the day, and, I, and, and both of us enjoyed it as well. So, but again, those are the two that I got to watch most closely, and I think by and large, uh, uh, both were, were impressive strategic leaders. You can certainly argue about some of the major decisions, of course, in either of those, and also about whether or not uh, rhetoric should get out ahead of what you're actually willing to do, uh, whether it is the promotion of democracy around the world or red lines against the use of chemical weapons against one's own people or something like that. And I think that is probably a lesson that perhaps all presidents and all leaders actually have learned over the years, which is that it is probably better to be a bit more measured. It is, you know, as Teddy Roosevelt said, speak softly, but carry a big stick rather than speaking loudly. Um, and again, letting your rhetoric get ahead of what the nation is actually willing to do and what you, what you are willing to ask the nation to do. Thank you, Michael, uh, Michael Falcon. Great. Thank you, Andrew. And thank you, uh, General, for uh, your time today and also not just for your service, but for your family's commitment. Uh, we know that the families behind the military leaders sacrifice as much or more um, than those of you that serve. But thank you for that. Um, I'm particularly uh, drawn to conversations I've had with a number of your former colleagues in the military, some uh, still active, and the importance that they've um, uh, communicated to me of our alliances and the level of communication, not just military, but civilian, um, of course, and then also through multi, multinational or multilateral organizations, 
uh, and particularly though through a military lens of how important that is both strategically and, and tactically. And I'd be interested in your thoughts of, that, that's a place where I feel we've had a lot of erosion um, in, the, in recent times. And I'm interested in your thoughts of that in the sure. context of the Kurds in northern Syria, but maybe even more importantly, relative to the Asian theater and the risks of miscalculation and, yep. and error on, on you know, what I believe is the, the Mattis doctrine um, around uh, you know, strategic uncertainty. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, yep. No, absolutely, and thanks. And, uh, and let me assure you that service was a was a privilege. Um, I am a huge believer in alliances. I am a huge believer in multilateral institutions, uh, international organizations. Even as I freely recognize that they can be frustrating beyond belief, uh, they can be. They can have shortcomings. They do have shortcomings. They will break your heart. They will whatever. But I. Uh, I actually was the chief of operations for a United Nations force, not a U.S. force. We had U.S. as part of it, but I was not a U.S. officer. I was strictly a U.N. Uh, for a mission in Haiti, the mission in Haiti. Uh, I was a one-star, a three-star, and a four-star as a NATO uh, commander over the years in different, actually in Bosnia, Iraq, and uh, Afghanistan, dual-hatted in every single case, actually, as also a U.S. Uh, usually in some special role that was not always acknowledged. Uh, and I commanded what was the largest, is the largest coalition in history of actual fighting forces. The anti-ISIS coalition, I think, may be the biggest ever, but an awful lot of those countries uh, do not have troops on the ground, certainly don't have them uh, in harm's way. The coalition in Afghanistan was, I believe, well over 60 countries. Uh, every one of those countries had caveats, in other words, limitations uh, on what their forces could do. Even the UK, it turned out, as I found out when Prime Minister Cameron showed up when we had uh, asked to move the British forces four villages uh, over in Helmand province. Uh, we did not ultimately do that. Uh, and what you had to do as a coalition commander was identify what are their strengths, whether their their shortcomings or weaknesses, and we compensated with US forces, intelligence, capabilities of various types for what the coalition uh, contingent could not provide. And that was okay. Uh, I realized one time, again, coalition maintenance is a huge task. Uh, it's enormously time consuming. Every delegation wanted to see me. I realized one time that I was giving one particular prime minister and his minister of defense and foreign affairs and chief of defense staff and all these others giving him more minutes of my time than he was providing soldiers from his country. But that's okay. And, you know, Churchill, I think, as with so many uh, of his aphorisms, got this just right when he said that, that the only thing worse than fighting with allies is fighting without them. So I am a massive believer in alliances, uh, in multilateral organizations, international organizations, also, by the way, multilateral trade organizations, again, for all of the shortcomings that they may have, um, and rather than bilateral uh, agreements with every one of those countries, because there is a geopolitical uh, outcome of a, an organization like the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which I strongly felt we should have joined, not because of the economic or trade benefits, ironically, but because of the 
geopolitical benefits that would have accrued from that. Um, I think right now is an example that this is a global pandemic. It is a global economic downturn. You need global solutions. How do you achieve those? The global leaders get together, however competitor they may be on other issues, and they put those competitive aspects aside and they figure out how to bring the rest of the world together uh, to try to come up with a solution to a problem that is bigger than any one country. Uh, let's keep in mind that with a pandemic, none of us is safe unless all of us, or at least most of us are safe. Uh, you can't have just the US safe and everyone else unsafe unless you just want to truly have no links to the rest of the world, which obviously would be uh, a disaster, even for a country that whose GDP is 70 to 75% domestic consumption. So again, I, I am a strong believer in those. And I'd end just by saying that the biggest of the big ideas, I believe, when it comes to the US-China relationship, which should be uh, founded on recognition that, that is far and away the most important relationship in the world, it's even more important than all of the others probably put together, uh, while noting that you know we are like the plate spinner in the circus, if you're a superpower, you can keep more than one plate spinning. This might be the biggest plate by far. It should get more attention than all the others, but we can also keep other plates spinning, such as a sustained commitment of, of a sustainable size uh, and cost uh, against Islamist extremists, against a variety of other challenges that we face. But the biggest of the big ideas should be that we have to have a coherent, and comprehensive whole of governments approach to China. And governments has an S on the end, which would imply again, allies, partners, which we uniquely have. Uh, if you just look objectively at the US and China, uh, we are the country that has these friends, these allies, these partners all around the world uh, in a way that China could only hope uh, to have at some point in time um, and may or may not have, depending on the character of the how aggressive their diplomacy and other activities are. So um, that should be the biggest of the big ideas for our overarching uh, engagement with the world. Uh, and that would then imply if you the beauty of big ideas, by the way, is if you actually agree on the big ideas, the policy falls out pretty in a pretty straightforward manner. So that would imply that you would go and rejoin or asked to join the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Um, you would go back to the World Health Organization. You would rejoin the Paris Climate Accord. I believe that climate change is real and that man has contributed at least in very significant part to that and therefore should take steps to try to mitigate the risks of it continuing uh, to the scale that folks fear, which could have such untoward consequences. Arguably what we're seeing right now in the Western United States is some re, uh, response to various aspects of climate change. So again, you've touched clearly on a subject that is near and dear to my heart. Uh, I believe that the US should be the leader of these uh, organizations or among the leaders, uh, certainly accommodating China when it has legitimate aspirations while pushing back uh, when those are not uh, seen that way from our perspective. Do you, so, do you, thanks. I'm sorry. Do you think CS is weakened in in this position relative to alliances, the like the bark versus the bite, and the rhetoric from the administration, or and 
and particularly relative to the the move from the Kurds in in Syria, is there a read across through your former you know military? Sure, there is. Yeah, yeah. no, there's just as there was in a previous administration when. Uh, you have a red line that doesn't turn out to be a red line entirely. Um, or, you know, in any of our administrations, when we have had, again, that's what I was sort of subtly getting at, if rhetoric outstrips what you're willing to do, um, you know, you can't just constantly criticize what's going on in the South China Sea, but then not do something in return. Uh, it's only when you do it in return. And, and you know, frankly, in the first couple of years of this administration, it seemed as if that awareness was informing what we were doing. Uh, there was a modest increase. That's all we needed in our, our uh, efforts in Syria, Iraq, and Afghanistan, and a reaffirmation of them. Uh, there seemed to be a recognition that what we needed was a sustained commitment, but one that is sustainable in terms of blood and treasure, so the minimum amount that you can get by with, but you still have to keep an eye on it. I mean, it's again, this idea that uh, I remember, you know, in a, another administration, there used to be the rhetoric, we have ended the war in Iraq. And I would raise my hand and say, excuse me, we actually haven't ended the war in Iraq. We have ended our participation in the war in Iraq. The war is going to go on. And the question is whether without us being there, it will devolve so seriously that we end up having to go back in, which is exactly, of course, what we had to do. And again, no administration has been immune from this. I think there's always the enormous temptation to give the lofty speech, but you've got to realize if you say that stuff, then uh, again, people will expect you to follow through. And if you do not follow through, then obviously it damages your credibility. And keep in mind that at the end of the day, when it comes to deterrence, particularly deterrence of what we most fear could possibly happen out of a miscalculation, Deterrence is a function of the adversary's assessment of not just your capabilities, but of your willingness to use them. Uh, and that calculation always has to be in the back of our leaders' minds. Okay, next up, uh, Bill Kaufman. Well, uh, great admirer. And you've answered basically a, a large part of the question I had, but what, what, what would you say are the other big ideas that America is facing right now and should be thinking about? Well, I guess, you know, another one, Bill, since I, uh, and it's great to see you, by the way, but, but beyond, you know, the sort of biggest idea for the interaction with the world, uh, I think the other big idea is what is it that we need to do to reinvest in uh, our economy at home? Uh, so what infrastructure investment would produce the greatest productivity gains. Um, and particularly now with the experiences that we've had during the pandemic, uh, because we know that the new, no the new normal is not going to be the old normal. Uh, what we have experienced over the last six months is going to change how we work, how we live, how we play, how we do everything uh, in life. Even if, again, there is a pandemic and it is universally administered and available and works and, you know, doesn't have a half-life and everything else, there still are going to be consequences of this. And in view of that, what are the investments that we need to make uh, to ensure that we are 
uh, prospering in these areas that are emerging. Now, some of this will naturally happen because of businesses that will make wise investment decisions. But as you know, we have a country in which I remember the president of Princeton University, the previous one, uh, Shirley Tillman, telling me one time about maybe a decade ago, she said, the bottom 40% of our economic strata in the US, we can really hardly find applicants who are qualified, fully qualified, much less most highly qualified. And it's because of uh, disadvantages. And now that disadvantage, if you don't have high-speed wireless at home and a laptop or iPad or what have you, you are at a real disadvantage. So again, what are the investments I think at home, in infrastructure, uh, in education, in comprehensive immigration reform. We've got to get this right. Again, we want the best and brightest to come to our country, not if they're going to then you know, exfiltrate all of our intellectual property to some military somewhere, but that's a very tiny subset. And we also, not only do we need more H-1B visas, we also need more of the kinds of visas that allow legal uh, immigration of workers uh, for a whole variety of, of uh, industries and fields without which uh, the crops won't be picked, uh, hospitality industries won't have workers should they come back. Uh, and of course, that is an open question as to how far some of these different industries will return and how long it will take to return to pre-pandemic levels, if, if ever, in some cases. So I, I think actually the whole question of how to uh, invest domestically, assuming that we will ultimately have another major uh, economic support package, noting that we have already spent more than two times our annual discretionary budget in the first three or so of these packages. And I believe those were wise. I don't, you can argue about the components and how they were administered and some other things. But I think that the Fed has done a brilliant job, and I think that uh, Congress, together with the executive branch, uh, has generally done a good job until this impasse uh, more recently, uh, and that they've been falling down on that in the last, gosh, now five or six weeks or what have you, and could actually not get to anything before the election. We'll see. Um, and again, it's what does that invest in, and then what are the legislative uh, issues that need to be addressed, uh, and also obviously to bring the country back together to try to reduce some of the uh, hyperpartisanship that has made uh, life so difficult and created such so social turmoil on top of uh, a, a very acute health crisis that has now killed so many more than Korea, Vietnam, Gulf War, Iraq, Afghanistan, almost times two. So, um, you know, we've got a lot to look at on the domestic front, I think. And at the end of the day, that becomes the foundation, needless to say, of our power internationally. So we absolutely have to get the big ideas right in, in those areas as well. Thanks. Okay, General, we're going to try and do the minute waltz in about 38 seconds here because I, I want to be uh, mindful of your time and uh, uh, all the participants' time. So. Uh, we're going to uh, throw a few questions at you at once. Uh, okay. uh, Stamen Ogilvy, and uh, then uh, Mike Precob, then um, Steve Schlenker, and then Sherry Fish. General, this will be a uh, 
uh, I think, big idea, but it is uh, one that I hope can be addressed fairly swiftly. Uh, clearly, you prefer that we are using our other items in the toolkit before we move the military into harm's way and into action, uh, in particular diplomacy and uh, economic sanctions and all of those sorts of things. Uh, question one relates to Iran. Uh, there have been two major initiatives, one the uh, uh, nuclear agreement and uh, the other the uh, sanctions that we have against them right now. Has either or both been beneficial to us in a geopolitical sense and uh, in postponing any type of military action? And similarly, uh, from a geopolitical standpoint, uh, is our energy independence, which effectively has come about somewhat to all of our surprise through fracking, uh, how vital is that to the uh, ability to project power as and when we must? Okay, uh, next, uh, Mike Precob. Thank you. Thank you, General. It's a privilege. Um, I want to ask you about the military industrial complex. Now, this comes up only because the president briefly mentioned it a couple of days ago. And I remember I read C. Wright Mill's book when I was in college. I remember Eisenhower saying it as he was leaving office. And it's always seemed like a third rail to me that it's, it seems probable, but no politician ever wants to touch it. Does that kind of relationship between military and industrial uh, actually exist? Have you run into it? Is it something that needs to be dealt with? Uh, Steve Schlenker. Uh, General Petraeus, thank you again for your service and your leadership. Um, I want to talk a little bit about NATO. Do you think the U.S. should be playing a more active role in terms of the dispute going on between Turkey and Greece? And do you think that this could escalate into a bigger problem given the U.S.'s recent uh, antipathy or antagonism towards our NATO allies? And uh, Sherry, Sherry Fish. Well, it's Tom, the uh, oh, okay. not, as, not as pretty version, but uh, General Petraeus, I just wanted to ask you, uh, we theoretically put you in charge of trying to get our federal government working again in this highly, highly partisan environment. Um, how do you go about accomplishing that task? What should we as an organization be doing that uh, that we are? That's that's why we're here. General, you have added uh, sure. you bet. All, all, all four at once. Let me start off with what Tom said. And I think the way I might come back, come at that one is to give a very brief synopsis of a, a speech that I was asked to do one time on the state of democracy in America. This is about a year, year and a half ago. And I started by noting that, you know, if you're asking a retired general about the state of democracy in America, things can't be all good. And they're not. Um, and so what, what is it, in my view, that needs to be fixed to improve the state of democracy? I think there are very fundamental issues that we need to come to grips with. I think that, um, and some states have adopted some of these aspects. Um, you have to do away with party primaries. Uh, party primaries, as you know, especially if you have gerrymandering. So you have to do away with gerrymandering as well. 
But the combination of party primaries and gerrymandering means that those red, red districts and red states get pulled further to the right and blue districts and states get pulled further to the left. By the way, both parties have resorted to gerrymandering uh, over the years and, and really both parties need to come to grips and let that go. But as long as you have that combination and then if you add unlimited money uh, in politics, uh, the combination is pretty lethal. Uh, I'd also add, add that if you have open primaries and a first past the post, uh, or I'm sorry, if you have primaries where if you don't get 50%, you know, they lop off the bottom, rank ordered voting, I think, has something to commend it as well. In addition, we need to get back to civics education uh, in our schools, something that has really fallen off. And there's a host of these kinds of issues. By the way, I think it is House Resolution 1 this year uh, that was passed when the Democrats retook control of the House is worth looking at because it incorporated the vast majority of these kinds of proposals. And I think they are very, very sound. And that's, again, if you want to get the federal government working again, you have to reduce some of the partisanship that has made uh, compromise in Washington a dirty word uh, and has rendered really uh, Congress into gridlock and therefore it doesn't work. Uh, and the combination at times, depending on who is in the executive branch, uh, that results in literally shutting down government. I mean, what could be more uh, in, an indicator of dysfunction of government not working than that it actually shuts down because it can't even agree on uh, appropriations. So again, I think that's where you, what you do to come at that. There's a variety of scholars who have laid some of that out. I think Larry Diamond in, uh, at Stanford is a very, very good one, but there are others uh, as well. Um, Steve, on the more active role in Turkey and Greece, uh, I do tend to think that we should be more active, but I would contend that this is a case where the EU uh, first of all, is actually stepping up to the plate, and it might be a case that the U.S. and the EU together uh, very much with NATO uh, on board as well, noting that Turkey is, of course, a NATO member, but not an EU member, and probably arguably now not even an EU aspirant uh, in any realistic sense uh, at this point in time. Um, so again, I, I do think we should be more engaged in that. I do think there's the potential for miscalculation that could lead to uh, some kind of uh, activity in the Eastern Mediterranean that would be very harmful to NATO. Uh, and the sooner that can be calmed down, the better. Um, on the military industrial complex is a very interesting question. And actually, I would add, uh, what Senator McCain was fond of using, which was the military industrial congressional complex. That very much exists. And it is a, has a very negative effect, but it's not necessarily the effect that was implied perhaps by the president the other day. It's more that you run into the idea that yes, we wanna cut infrastructure that we don't need in the US military, that's a great idea, 
until it's actually in my backyard or my district or my state, which of course it's a horrible idea. And not only will we not vote for it, we will actually block all nominations until that I, you know, that thought passes or something like that. So that's actually the challenge. Um, the the Congress has forced the military to buy certain weapon systems that it no longer wanted, uh, because particularly powerful members of Congress uh, wanted to ensure that a a key in industrial plant in their uh, district or state continued to function. Now, I will acknowledge that there is value in maintaining uh, military and industries uh, during periods of slowdowns or what have you, but that should be approached from that perspective, not that Congress knows better than the Air Force and you. we know that you need more C-130Js than you've actually asked for, uh, we know you don't even, you say you don't want any more, but by God, you're going to take them. And that is because of the military industrial congressional complex. So again, there is some of that. There is certainly not uh, uh, military officers who are making decisions on going to war or continuing war uh, because it's going to benefit Raytheon or General Dynamics or something like that. That is absolute lunacy. Uh, and I am incredulous uh, about that, having been the one who was advising uh, two different presidents on two different wars, actually more than that, because there were actually some that were not full wars like Iraq and Afghanistan, but Yemen and uh, the fight against pirates and a variety of other activities that we had, that if you ask those, our soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines who were engaged in them, they sure thought they were at war. Um, so that's how I would cast that one. Um, for statement for does energy independence enable power projection? First of all, I think we have to have a nuanced view of our energy independence. There is no question that we are independent and a very substantial exporter of natural gas. But when it comes to crude oil, although we are a net exporter of crude oil, barely, or at least we were, I haven't looked at the numbers actually to see how it has shaken out once we have reduced the production as much as we have. But we certainly had reached miraculously, really, an extraordinary achievement uh, and testament to our uh, entrepreneurship, invention of deep directional drilling, hydraulic fracturing and seismic big data, our legal system that allows you to sell or rent mineral rights uh, underneath your land, uh, the agile capital markets, uh, agile companies that can stand up and, and all the rest of this, which is only found here, which is why this is the only country that has seen any really substantial production from unconventional, uh, i.e. from uh, hydraulic fracturing, either for gas or, or oil. But when it comes to crude oil, it's well known that we have to export a number of millions of barrels of light crude each day and get heavy crude. Uh, because our refineries are more for, we have more refinery needs of heavy crude than we do for light crude. And so there's other nuances to this. We are not insulated by any means. We are close to energy self-sufficient as a continent. If you look at the trade of the heavy crude that comes from Canada or from, to some degree, from Mexico, uh, our, our imports from outside North America are dramatically lower. But the other important uh, 
reality here is that does not mean that it is not still a, I'd argue, a vital national interest that the energy resources of the Gulf continue to flow freely uh, and that there's freedom of navigation for those ships with that, those resources going either east uh, to the Indo-Pacific or west to uh, Africa, to Europe, or what have you. It is still very important for the global economy. Uh, and again, that's therefore very, very important to us. Um, the Iran nuclear agreement uh, had very distinct benefits. I reminded another audience earlier today in Mideast group that it was the Israeli defense chief who said in the wake of the signing of the agreement that it made Israel safer for 10 years. But that is the operative point. There are end dates, there are sunset clauses. And obviously, while there are, again, very distinct benefits, I mean, it's hugely important that Iran eliminated all of its medium-enriched uranium, that it did away with 99% of its low-enriched uranium, that it reduced the number of centrifuges spinning, that it ended the plutonium path to a bomb, and that it allowed a quite uh, intrusive verification regime to be established. Having said all that, uh, it also, of course, gave Iran a great deal more money, uh, which the Revolutionary Guards Kutch Force could get their hands on some of to carry out mischief in the region that is very, very significant, the Shia proxy militias that it is uh, funding in Iraq, in Syria, in Yemen, in some of the Gulf states, and obviously with Hezbollah in Lebanon, uh, a country that is truly just you know, on the brink of, of not just financial collapse, uh, but other collapse as well, given that terrible explosion uh, that destroyed so much of their port, many houses and apartments, and the grain elevators in which the grain reserves for that country were sitting. So. Um, Iran, again, you have to have a nuanced view also of that agreement. Uh, a lot of people are asking, should we just go back to it if there is a Biden administration? I'm not so sure about that because, again, the sunset clauses are approaching. And if you don't lengthen those uh, sunset clauses, we'll be back in the same kind of situation we were when the Obama administration was furiously trying to negotiate that because of a recognition that if we could not get them to halt their nuclear program at some point in time, we might have to carry out military action to halt it. And in fact, I was a central command commander at the time, it's publicly known that we developed the plan to do that. But you have no idea what really happens uh, once you roll the iron dice and you set a plan like that into motion uh, and where that will end and how it will end. Uh, we can destroy the Iranian nuclear program uh, with our assets if we have to, but there's no telling what the responses will be uh, and what the, the unexpected consequences of that might be as well. Um, the sanctions had benefits as well. Um, they also have had downsides. They have allowed the Iranians to try to drive a wedge between the United States and the other permanent members of the, National, of the UN Security Council, in particular China and Russia. And there's a fear that China would do a deal with uh, uh, Iran that would allow them to circumvent those sanctions and also to drive a wedge between the European members of the UN Security Council plus Germany. Uh, and so, again, there's, there are some other uh, issues connected uh, with that. And then 
I am a huge believer in using all of the other elements in the in the toolkit, uh, and and even if you use military, to still use all of the government's uh, capabilities in concert. The problem has been that we have underinvested in the non-military capabilities, including in our State Department, in AID, and in some of the other. Uh, international uh, capabilities of some of the other executive branch departments. Uh, and that will have to be one of the issues that the president, the next president, whomever it may be, is going to have to come to grips with. But um, with that, I very much want to thank you for the opportunity uh, to be with you. And again, Andrew, thanks for orchestrating this, inviting me, uh, you and Nancy, and thanks for the privilege of spending an hour with you. General, thank you very much. First of all, thank you, of course, for your service, but also for your insights. Thank you for everything you do every day to make our country better. Uh, we really appreciate uh, you being here and spending an hour with us. Uh, let me turn it over to Bill Galston, one of the founders of No Labels and uh, uh, really one of, the, one of the great thinkers in, uh, in Washington. Bill, you on? Uh, you, you still on? Here I am, Andrew. There you are, Bill. Here I am. Uh, well, first of all, uh, General, uh, let me repeat those thanks. Uh, and Michael Hanlon sends his regards. Uh, my colleague at Brookings. One of the great thinkers uh, and a great friend and fellow as, Princeton PhD. Yep. Uh, I suspect that our, our, real, our real founder, Nancy Jacobson, was smiling as you laid out your four-part doctrine of strategic leadership, uh, because it's almost a, a perfect description of how she conceives of, of her role, starting with the generation and then regeneration of big ideas. As you know, General Petraeus, I, we have a clear mission here at No Labels, and that is to reduce partisan polarization and to promote a renewed cooperation between the two political parties in the national interest. Uh, and uh, if, if you have any ideas based on your experience about you know, how to do that, uh, we would be most appreciative to, uh, for the opportunity to continue our dialogue. Uh, let me just say one other thing. I mean, I actually do. And I again, I would pull out House Resolution number one which aggregated an awful lot of the ideas that I laid out for you and, and others that would actually go a long way to reducing partisanship uh, in Washington. Maybe, I don't know about all of America, but it will, the result of the changes would be to reduce partisanship in Washington. And it would, I think, therefore allow government to function better than it has uh, in the years of unlimited money uh, party primaries, gerrymandering, uh, et cetera, et cetera. We'll take a hard look at it. Final point. Uh, in my years at Brookings, uh, I've encountered a very large number of current and, and recently retired senior military leaders. Uh, and it is impossible not to be impressed by the quality of the training the reflection on the experience that they uniformly demonstrate. Uh, and it is my belief, and it's a widely shared belief, that retired senior military leaders such as yourself have a very important role to play 
in the rebuilding of American democracy that's clearly going to be required. Uh, and uh, we hope very much that you and your peers uh, will, will continue to put your shoulders to the wheel uh, because this is really an all hands, deck on, uh, all hands on deck operation. And I don't think that it can succeed without, without the leadership of people such as yourself. So with that, thanks again. Thank you. Great to be with you. General Petraeus identifies four key tasks of a strategic leader. One, first and foremost, get the big ideas and strategies right. Two, communicate those big ideas throughout your organization. Three, oversee the implementation of big ideas. And four, determine how to refine the big ideas and adopt new ones. According to Petraeus, this last task is often overlooked and can make the difference between a currently successful organization and a continuously successful one. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest problems. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast.